In 2018, a 15-year-old boy comes home from school to find his mother's vehicle in the driveway running. When he enters the home, it is clear a struggle had taken place and his mother is nowhere to be found. He calls police and expresses his concerns. When police show up, they can tell something horrible has unfolded during that day. Less than six hours later, they piece together a shocking and unbelievable case. Let's talk true crime. Welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. The case we are talking about today is mainly going to focus around the investigation and interrogation, as well as the timeline and details of the crime. I couldn't find much backstory, but I did, however, find huge chunks of the interview slash interrogation and even some body cam footage from police thanks to an amazing show called explore with us which i have linked in the show notes if you want to watch that for a more in-depth perspective i also scoured the web for news articles on the case uh, and on the trials so let's get into it on november 2nd 2018 in central florida 15-year-old Gregory Ramos seemed to be scared and confused when he got home from school, so he called police. He couldn't find his mom, yet her vehicle was in the driveway and it was running. He told police this was really odd as she should have been at work. What was raising alarm bells was the state of the house. It was chaos inside. No room was left untouched and everything was everywhere. The back door of the home appeared to be forcefully opened and was broken. Immediately, police knew something happened there that was more than just a break-in. This scene though, it didn't make any sense to them. Gregory's father, he was not there at this time. He was away on a business trip. He was coming home that evening around six. Gregory also had two step siblings that lived there as well, but they were also away staying elsewhere. This left Gregory alone and seemingly shook up. Gregory had dreams of one day becoming a detective, and he was even involved in a program with the local police department. From what I gather, it's like a little deputies program situation. In fact, the night before, Gregory had volunteered through this program to help park cars at a local community fair, and this volunteer position they refer to as traffic detail. Because of this, he knew a detective named Ken Jones. Ken was Gregory's sponsor in this program, and he also arrived at the scene. Gregory also called Ken Jones. The police need to assess the scene and gather evidence, so they take Gregory down to the police station to ask him some questions. They are looking for any information they can get to start building a timeline and also find Gail Clevenger, Gregory's missing mother. I didn't know this about Florida, but a minor doesn't require a parent to be there for police questioning or for a police interview. Uh, but that is 
true. And in this case, Gregory is interviewed by two detectives, Detective Ken Jones, who he knows, and Sergeant Pegliari. Something that immediately draws attention that needs to be addressed is the bruising on Gregory's face. He looked a bit banged up, to say the least. Since Ken Jones had seen Gregory the night before at the fair, he knows that those are fresh bruises. When they asked Gregory about these marks, he told them that he did have them the night before because Ken Jones says, well, you didn't have those marks last night when you were doing traffic detail. And Gregory says, yes, I did, but I wore foundation to cover them up. As he had gotten into a slight altercation earlier that day with a kid named Joe, who apparently had no last name to speak of. Gregory didn't know this Joe guy's last name, yet he referred to him as a friend. So he said he got into this slight altercation with his friend named Joe and he didn't want to do traffic detail with these bruises on his face so he used concealer and he covered them up which is what how he explains to Ken why he didn't see the bruises the night before. Detective Ken Jones says okay then um back to this back to your friend named Joe you don't know his last name. You don't know anybody who knows his 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 last name. And Gregory says, no, he, he doesn't know his last name. Doesn't know anybody who would know his last name. And he's like, well, what happened there? What was this? What, you know, what, what happened? And Gregory said this Joe guy approached him at school in the parking lot when he was leaving at the end of the day, uh, meaning before he went and worked that traffic detail at the fair where he saw and spoke to Ken Jones with no marks on his face that Ken could see. Gregory explains that Joe was pissed off at him, walked up, punched him in the face. He also said there was nobody around to witness this slight altercation, but it wasn't really a big deal because after he was hit once, he managed to defuse the situation quickly and the two ended up hugging. And he really makes a point to talk about how well he handled this situation after getting punched in the face. He said he didn't get angry or violent. He talked this Joe guy down and they both apologized and then they hugged. Hmm. Okay. So nobody was around to witness this at the end of a school day in a parking lot. They hugged after a punch then Gregory put makeup on covering up the marks and went to uh, park cars at the fair and he did such a good job with this makeup that he put on that a detective couldn't tell that there were bruises immediately immediately I gotta say this is looking weird to me it's looking flimsy Eventually, the fight incident, that gets dropped for now. And Sergeant Pegliari, he takes the reins of this interview. I think this is smart because if someone is being untruthful, perhaps switching subjects and coming back to the same question is going to easily make for perhaps fake details to be altered or not included the next time the story is explained. So this was probably their tactic. The subject then changes to what Gregory's relationship was like with his mom. This is one of the first things they ask him. Gregory, he doesn't say it's great, but he doesn't say it was horrible either. He said they argued a bit, but no more than no, no more than most child-mother relationship. And he makes sure to say how he really hopes 
that his mother is okay and that they they love each other a lot. After a bit more talk about Greg's relationship with his mother and the minor issues he's having at school, Sergeant Pegliari then says, well, who was at your house last night? So he's really, you know, he's, he's going through these quite quickly. And the interview takes, it takes a lot of turns like this. Again, most likely a tactic, jumping from one topic to the next and then revisiting the topic again. After Gregory says it was just him and his mom, because his dad was away on business, his step-siblings were at their other parents' house, and they ask him again about the about the fair, and they make Gregory tell his story from there. So like, what happened last night after the fair? Basically, the timeline laid out at this point is that Gregory worked the fair, the, the parking volunteer job with the... Um, through the police department, went home at 8.47. He's very clear on this time, 8.47. He said he had dinner with with his mother. Nothing abnormal occurred. He said it was just like every other night. He said he went to bed, woke up for school the next morning. He was running a bit behind, so his mom dropped him off, and he spent all day at school. He then said he got home, found his house destroyed, and changed his shirt I, I was like, what? That's kind of weird, but okay. So you, you, all right. Amongst this chaos, you changed your shirt. Okay. Once talking about his school day, Gregory says, oh yeah, um, I have a D in that class. So they're talking, they're, they're going through his, his school day. I think it was his first class of the day, biology or something. He offers up that he has a bad grade in that class. And he also follows that up pretty quickly with he and his mom did have an argument the night before about that grade. So he he's offered this up. They didn't really poke and prod at this. He was like, I got a D in that class. And I believe Pegliari was like, oh, well, you know, your mom must not like that. And then he says, yeah, we had an argument about it the night before. So they run through the night before again. And Gregory said the argument was mild. It was just a mild argument discussion about this bad grade and after that his his mom and dad were talking on the phone okay so this was after dinner they maybe it was during dinner he's saying they got into this argument after dinner his mom and dad are talking on the phone Gregory goes in and gets on the phone and says hello to his dad as well and after that phone call is done he said he and his mom they had a good night prayer he gave her a kiss then he went to bed around 11. At one point he also made it clear that he would never physically harm his mother um, and he makes that that very clear that's a point he really pushes he even offers up a story about how a year ago originally he says months ago then it turns into a year ago um, when he and his mom argued, she told him that she was scared of him, but he told her that he would never harm her. So that's kind of a weird story. I mean, it's very clear there's more to this story than what he's letting on. And, and he is telling detectives these little tidbits to really make it clear. I wouldn't hurt my mom. But the fact that he told them that his mom had previously expressed concerns that she was scared of him, I found that quite odd because I don't think that's going to help him in this situation. 
Now detectives have a bit of a timeline forming here and they've got a bit more information to, you know, put into this timeline. They start to ask Gregory about the current day, the day his home was trashed and his mother went missing, the day that is actually the day that they're they're talking to him right now. Gregory said that being at school all day, he took the bus home and he walked from the bus stop to his house, which he claims takes around 15 minutes. He then got home, saw his mom's vehicle running in the driveway and thought that was weird, then went inside to find the house destroyed. He said he looked around, uh, saw every room was trashed, went into his room and noticed things were gone, such as his gaming computer, um, compound bow and his stereo. He describes the computer and he says he spent all of his hard-earned dollars on it. He had saved all this money from working and he bought this gaming computer with it. It was like a computer tower, not a laptop. And when Pagliari says, well, you, you know, you must be pretty upset that that's gone because for a 15-year-old boy to spend all of his savings on a computer that's probably over a year's worth of savings for a 15-year-old boy depending on you know, how they're making this money. And Gregory pauses, then expresses that he's more concerned his mom is missing. The, the fact he doesn't dwell on this missing computer he worked so hard for, this is going to be explained later. I am summarizing what I saw of this interview. Um, if you want the full details, again, that link is in the show notes because there's a lot of information and weird behavior in it just odd odd behavior in it so the entire time Pegliari and Gregory are talking detective Ken Jones he's just chilling in this room off to the side just listening to everything after Gregory says the items he noticed were stolen Pegliari takes a break from the questioning and leaves the room so this just leaves Gregory and Ken there and remember Gregory is familiar with Ken he knows Ken during this time Gregory says to Ken I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life and Ken is like wait what he doesn't say it he just leans forward like tell me more like encouraging Gregory to keep going then Gregory quickly says oh with regards to other things Hmm. then he starts crying and this cry, it's pretty strange. It looks pretty forced. Um, I don't know. It gets odd for a few minutes. Gregory starts to say something that starts with, I wish. Then he stops and he says, I hope she's safe. And this, inter- there's more to this. It goes on for a while. It's it's just such a an odd interaction. Sergeant Pegliari comes back in. And when I saw this, I suspected that when he left the room he was on his phone to other detectives getting more information on the case as it unraveled because there was other detectives out there they're going around they're talking to the school they're they're talking to people okay so I suspect that this is what Pagliari was doing was he was getting more intel on the situation but he doesn't give anything away um nothing that he's just learned he does he doesn't say he just said he needed to take a break for a minute steps outside brought his phone with him comes back in later and he picks up where they left off, which is when Gregory got home. So he's like, tell me more about when you got home. You discovered a trashed house. Things were missing, including your mom. Okay, that's where they left off. Gregory then gives incredible detail about the back door being the point of entry for the alleged burglars and that he suspects it was kicked in. He also goes into detail about how he notices his mom's bed 
was slightly out of place. And he wraps it up with he couldn't find his mom and he called police. So that's where he kind of ends that timeline. It was a pretty detailed description, but he left out when he changed his shirt because he had said, I changed my shirt at some point. When this is brought to his attention, he's like, oh yeah, um, I did change my shirt. And then he proceeds to tell a very long story about that aspect, this time adding in that he had thrown up, then changed his shirt. He's, he was, he didn't know if there was vomit on it. And it's details like this that can really pull apart a lie. Because before he said he was just really sweaty, so he changed his shirt. Now he's remembering that he vomited and he changed his shirt. I don't think I talked about Gregory's police call that day. I, I haven't mentioned that yet. Well, it was basically him calling 911 and uh, reiterating what he first told Pegliari. He said that he had got home. His house was completely trashed. It looks like someone broke in the side door. His mom's car is, is there and it's on, but she's not home. He said he had been there about eight minutes. He's looked around and she's not there. He also told the operator that he had been at school all day. So he says that in his 911 call. Hey, I've been at school all day. My house is trashed. My mom is missing. I've just got home. Okay, this statement at the end, this, I've been at school all day, this is a big one because, well, I'll come back to that later, but it's, okay, we're going to, this is going to come up again. Sergeant Pegliari, he steers the questioning back to that fight that uh, Gregory had mentioned about with his friend Joe, who had no last name. This time, Gregory says that his friend did actually witness it. So before he said nobody had seen it, now he's like, you know what? Now that I think about it, I was with my friend Brian and he saw everything. He was there actually. And he also remembers that Joe's last name starts with an L. So this has just come to him out of nowhere. So again, new information that wasn't there before is, is, now, is now coming out. Gregory even gives a reason for the altercation and I couldn't help but cringe at how many times he used the word grind and grinding. He said that the, at a previous dance, a homecoming or something, Joe L's ex-girlfriend was feverish about grinding on him. He couldn't stop her. She needed this in her life and I guess he allowed this. When this Joe guy found out that's what the fight was over uh, and the fight started with a punch and a slap or something and then turned into a hug okay now the conversation about Greg being at school is brought up it is now known that Gregory was not in his class that started at 110 that day so where was he when asked, he said he was there. He was at the school. He just wasn't in that class because he decided to go study, like skip that class and go study for the class that he had a D in. And he said he went to the school's auditorium to do this studying. So he skipped one class to study for another class, which is why he was absent for the class, but he didn't leave the school grounds. It's pretty crazy how this interview goes into an interrogation because suddenly Sergeant Pegliari is like, you killed your mom. 
so there's a few bits and pieces within there but basically Pagliari is just throws it out there you killed your mom I mean anyone's going to be taken aback by by that and that could explain Gregory's long pause uh but then as calm as anything he says and why would you think I would do that and that's like how he says it very calm so Sergeant Pegliori, they're talking about school, they're talking about this deed, they're talking about the auditorium, all this stuff. And then there's not really much lead up. Pegliari is just like, well, you killed your mom. And then there's just this long pause. I'm talking long. Like, I don't know. I didn't count the seconds, but I would guess like seven to 10 seconds maybe. And then Gregory says, and why would you think I would do that? just calm, collected, cool. To me, that was haunting. Why didn't he say, oh my God, is my mom dead? Like he, you know, if he's claiming he doesn't know what happened to his mom and someone says that, aren't you going to be like, what? What do you mean? And then scream his innocence or dig deeper into if she actually is dead or what happened to her. But no, he's just so calm. And he doesn't want more information about his mother. He wants to know why the detective would think that he would do that. Then he comes back with a confession about how he was sexually assaulted. Just out of the blue. Just out of the blue, he drops this bomb. And he then proceeds to say his mom was there for him in that horrible time of his life. And he would never do anything to hurt her. So after knowing what I know now... Would I be justified in wondering how much of this was made up? Because I know at least one of the things that he just said is a huge lie. But I don't know if it all is. He does say that he did report that sexual assault to police and they did nothing about it. Which if that is the case, there would be a record of that being reported and it is never disputed. So that that could be true. To detectives, this could look like Gregory is deflecting this guilt they're trying to throw on him. Or, or, you know, like they're saying, you killed your mom. And then he's saying, whoa, I was sexually assaulted. So this could be perceived as being manipulative, trying to steer away from, from what's happening. And he's using this incredibly traumatic experience to, to do this. After this conversation, Gregory's story, it changes a lot. Now he is saying he worked the traffic detail at the fair, parking cars last night. Then he went home where he had an argument with his mom about this D grade that he had at school. Um, but that night he didn't go to bed as he previously claimed. He said he pretended to go to bed, but... What he actually did was he went into his room and turned off the light at 11 o'clock like he was going to sleep. He waited for his mom to go to sleep and then he snuck into her room at about 1230 at night and went and retrieved his phone because apparently at nighttime he's not supposed to have his phone so his mom keeps it in her room and he wanted this phone back. So he waited about an hour and a half pretended he was asleep waited for his mom to go to sleep crept in her room grabbed his phone and he wanted his phone so he could contact his friends and once he contacted his friends he said he snuck out they came around he snuck out he drank with them and he smoked cigarettes with them 
and he also stole his mom's vehicle. He stole his mom's van, loaded his friends up in it, drove around, drank, and smoked. He said they drove around for a while, uh, then they went to a nearby church to drink, smoke, and take some acid by the fire pit there. This fire pit and this driving around and all all this stuff, this is going to come back up later. Um, This is actually a huge part of the case. He said he and his friends drove back and forth from the fire pit to his house and also to a 7-Eleven. He just keeps saying they needed money and, and they from, from his house and they needed things and they kept driving back and forth. And I'm just going to tell you right now, this isn't accurate and he is making this story up, although that van did go back and forth between those spots. I think that he thinks... The police are going to find out that he did these movements, that he drove his mom's van around, he went to the church, he went to his house. So he's covering his tracks. He said he got home around 545 that morning. He said he then got ready for school and his mom dropped him off. He now also admits that he did leave school at 110 that afternoon with his friends Dylan and Brian in Brian's vehicle and that he was not studying biology like he had previously said. Instead, he and his friends went to his house. He said they went to get money. So I don't know why he's always going to his house to get money. Um, And then he said they went and smoked cigarettes at the church fire pit, the same place they were the night before. No mention of his mom's vehicle or the house being trashed when he went to his house to to get stuff and then went to the church. He doesn't mention anything about his mom's car or finding the house trashed at this point. It was after this that he got dropped off at his house and that he noticed his mom's vehicle was in the driveway and the house was trashed. So according to his story, that break-in happened after he and his friends skipped school, got money from his house, and then went to that fire pit. And it was when he got home that he discovered the home in ruins and called the police. So I'm already seeing this is quite difficult to follow. By this time, the interview had gone on for hours. Since police now have the name of his friends Brian and Dylan, the ones that he claims he was with, they send detectives to go talk to them while Gregory is still giving his story and Sergeant Pagliari he asked Gregory multiple times will your friends tell us the same story that you're telling us right now and Gregory says yes they will he seems a bit unsure though but he inevitably lands on yeah they will they're gonna tell you this exact same story well okay then let's hear what they had to say then let's hear if their story matches up Dylan and Brian are spoken to separately as they're found in their own home. So detectives go to their house, their houses, they they don't live together, they live separately and they're questioned separately by detectives. Some of their storyline, it does add up with each other's, but some of it doesn't and some of it, ugh, I don't know, I guess hardly... Okay, none of their original story lines up with Greg's, but their two stories do seem to line up with each other. It's clear that detectives know that these boys know things. They just don't know what they know. But eventually the truth does come out. And it's these truths, it's these truths that is the only thing that lines up in both of their stories told separately. 
At first, Dylan says, yeah, I saw Greg today, uh, but only at lunch and after school. I saw him walking, didn't talk to him. Certainly, I didn't leave the school with him. Then after a while, he says, okay, all right, me, Brian, and Greg, we did go to Greg's house after school today, and he gave me his gaming computer and this bow. But I didn't ask him why. He just, you know, gave it to me. And he said he didn't notice that the house was was trashed at this point. Dylan even offers to show police the bow and computer that are stashed in his closet. He also tells police that Greg threw out some stuff in a Winn-Dixie dumpster, which is later located by police. So th- this is proved to be true now police have found this gaming laptop they found the bow they found this stuff from Greg's house in this dumpster in a Winn-Dixie parking lot and you know the it's all it's all really starting to come out now so after a little while longer Dylan comes completely clean he says okay Greg called me and Brian this morning and he said something big happened but he didn't elaborate Brian and Dylan went and picked up Gregory from his house that very morning Dylan then tells detectives that Greg had told them, and this is a quote that Dylan gives to detectives about what Greg had told them. Quote, I did it. I really did it. I killed my mother. Unquote. So pretty quickly, they get a lot of information out of Dylan. But let's talk about Brian. What's he going to say to detectives? Well, Brian said he saw Greg at, at lunch at school that day. Then after a while, he also goes more into detail and he fills in some blanks that match with exactly what Dylan said. Brian eventually says that he gave Greg a ride to school that morning and that Greg had told him he had killed his mother. But Brian said he didn't believe him. And I genuinely believe that Dylan and Brian didn't believe Greg at first when he said he, he killed his mom. I, I can I can genuinely believe that. Brian then confirms the rest of what Dylan said about going there during the school day and removing items from the home to discard of them, to get, get them out of the house. He adds in that they also stopped at the church and Greg threw a trunk filled with stuff in the lake. So, what really happened? What re- What is the true and honest story? What's happened here? Sergeant Pegliari, he gets word of what Brian and Dylan have told detectives, and he's still in that room interviewing Greg. And this is when things take a, um, I, it's chilling. Honestly, it's, it's chilling. I'm going to call this a chilling turn. When Greg is confronted, at first he denies everything. He's still denying it. Pegliari just lays it out. He says, so you didn't kill your mother. You didn't stage this scene this burglarized house scene. Um, You didn't give your friends things to hold on to. You then didn't call police and then make up this huge elaborate lie and now you're not sitting in front of me lying for the last couple hours. Gregory, by this point, he must know. He must know that Dylan and Brian told police more than he wanted them to, to tell, but he still keeps denying it until he doesn't. Pegliari says, guess what? Guess what we found? All the things you said were stolen. And Gregory quickly asks, where? 
Okay. And Pagliari says something about, I don't know, you tell me one of your buddies. And then he says something about one of his buddies. And then Greg's like, what? You're saying my friends robbed my house? And the detective's like, you tell me. And it's this this weird little standoff. So by this point, it's over about four hours into the interview, four hours and, and, and 17 minutes or something. And Pagliari tells him, hey, your friends told us a lot. Okay. And Gregory, he wants to know what they told police, but obviously he's not going to get that information. He says, hey, your friends told us a lot. And he's like, well, what, what do you know? Pegliari's like, um, no, no, you're not asking me that, buddy. We're, we're asking the questions here. Pegliari does give him one thing though. And he says, so when your friend tells us that you told him that you killed your mother, he's lying. And Greg goes silent, really silent. We've got a long pause again. And I'm sure in his head, he's thinking, oh my God, Brian or Dylan or both of them, they've told police everything. They know, what am I going to do? And then he speaks. And when he speaks again, he is like a different person. You can hardly recognize him. I mean, he, he looks the same, but his personality, what he's saying, everything changes. The Gregory who had been talking for the last four hours and 20 minutes, he's gone. He's gone. And the real Gregory starts to speak. It is like a switch got flipped. It is like he ripped off a mask and reveals his true self. It is, it, it is cold and chilling and haunting and terrifying and dark. He says, all right, I'll tell you what happened. Then he proceeds to talk about how he brutally killed his mother as if he is talking about building a fort. Remember, he's only 15 years old. I just want you to remember this as I quote what he tells detectives. And this is long, verbatim. This is what he said. I copied the whole thing out. He says, and I'm going to say it, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to mimic the tone he says it in. He talks pretty quick and nonchalant. Okay. So he says, quote, all right, I got home. I got into an argument with my mom. She slapped me across the face. She began to hit me. She started beating me. I didn't like it, so I strangled her to death. I put her in a wheelbarrow. I put her in my car. I took the car. I had a mental breakdown where I almost committed suicide three times. I drove around Daytona. I dropped the wheelbarrow in some random ass location. Then I drove back to the church and began to dig a hole. I dig a hole right under the fucking fire pit. I dig a pretty deep hole, pretty deep, you know, deep enough to put a body in. All this time, my mom's decomposing body. I dragged it from the car to the fire pit, in which case I tried to cut the wedding ring off her finger because I wanted to pawn it, but I couldn't because I didn't have a knife strong enough to cut bones. Oh, well, whatever. Anyways, I dug that hole, threw her body in there, filled it back in, made it look nice and natural, dumped my clothes, and then I went home and I caught a ride to school with my friends and yeah, unquote. Yep. Pagliari, he speaks up again and he says, well, what about staging the scene? Like you left out that part. And then Gregory says, oh yeah, I forgot about that part. And that's just how he says it. Oh yeah, I forgot about that part. <laughs> he said he came up with the idea to make his mother's disappearance look like a robbery gone wrong after he killed her and buried her body under the church's fire pit. 
he even gives himself compliments on the scene he set up, saying he thinks he did quite a nice job and that it was pretty convincing. Gregory then elaborates on his confession. He says that his mother hit him during their argument earlier that evening and he was mad about it. This made him really angry. He said he went into her bedroom at 1230 that night to confront her. During this confrontation, he began to strangle his own mother with his bare hands. Then he even complains about how it hurt his hands and also that she scratched him. Yep. Yeah, he's like, well, I mean, poor me. Like, look at my hands. There's a mark there. It was really hard. And I got scratches on me. He said that he killed his mother because he believed that his mother was going to kill him one day. So he said his thinking was that it was either him or her. And this is another quote. I didn't want her to kill me. I didn't think that was fitting. That wouldn't have worked out, so I just took action instead. Mm-hmm. That is a another quote. Gregory explains in a it's kind of monotone. I would I would say monotone, but quite quickly that he had to strangle his mom twice before she died. He initially strangled her, then he went to go grab a wheelbarrow. When he got back, he noticed she was still alive, whether she was moving around or making noises. She was still alive, but she was very weak. So he then again strangled her until he knew for sure that she was dead. I'm going to actually quote him again and just, you know, keep in mind, remember, this is a 15-year-old talking, okay? Gregory tells investigators, uh, quote, And then once she wasn't resisting, when I dragged her dead body across the floor, I knew she was dead, unquote. He then continues to tell Sergeant Pagliari every detail. So he's not holding back anymore. He's not lying. He wants to lay everything out. He says, quote, well, listen, dead bodies are fucking heavy. They're a pain in the ass to carry. I was like, all right, this is easy. A simple fireman's carry, right? I'm just going to pick her up and whatever, bring her in the car, throw her in there. No, this shit is heavy. So I got the wheelbarrow, dragged her out to the stairs, and then I positioned the wheelbarrow in a way so I could basically muscle her body into the wheelbarrow just perfect enough to where I could get her into the car or actually into the wheelbarrow without having to, you know, whatever, break my back, unquote so nonchalant he is just so nonchalant about this he then describes how he strapped belts around her ankles and dragged her from the wheelbarrow into the back of the minivan he also says how at this point he was having a realization that he just ruined his future that's what he was worried about he was worried about his own future From there, he drove around contemplating what to do next. At first, he was just going to dump his mother's body somewhere and then take off into hiding, but he didn't know where he could disappear to. Then he thought about driving the van into oncoming traffic to kill himself, but he decided against that. At some point, he settled on burying his mother's body under the fire pit at the church. But before he did this, he ditched the wheelbarrow, which he later said he regrets, Uh, when it was time to move his mother's body from the van to the fire pit because apparently there was a bit of a, a dirt pathway you had to get down from the parking lot to get to this fire pit. So he said he ended up driving to the church. Um, he had a shovel with him. Uh, so he starts to dig, but he realized he needs more light. It was very dark. Remember earlier, so we're going to just 
go back to what he said earlier because this ties in. So remember earlier he said that when he snuck out, he stole his mom's van and him and his friends drove around and then went to the fire pit, took acid and, and, and drank. Um, he also said they kept driving from the fire pit to his house to get to get money and he said to 7-Eleven to get money and to get things well he told police that lie and he admits that he admits this he says I told that lie because he wanted to be able to explain the movement had they searched the location history on his phone so when he previously made up that story to police it was for that exact reason so now he's saying that he was actually driving from he, he was driving around contemplating what what to do next when he settled on the fire pit he then had to drive back and forth from the fire pit to his house to get things to to dig this hole he drove from the fire pit to his house to get candles and a flashlight which he then used to light up the area he was digging in because he couldn't see much using his phone light he said he was listening to music on his phone as well which is why he didn't want to ditch it yeah so he's like I knew it could track my location but I was listening to music and you know I, I really wanted to listen to music so whatever I didn't really care that's his whole attitude throughout this whole confession and I mean he was fully aware he was fully aware that his location could, could be tracked. This is now starting to paint a incredibly haunting image of this 15-year-old boy digging his mother's grave behind a church in candlelight, listening to music as her lifeless body lays either in the back of the minivan or, or even on the scene with him. And that is just some very, very dark imagery. While he is explaining how he dug the hole, he sidetracks into how bad his mother's dead body smelt. He says, quote, you ever smelled a dead body? Yeah, they smell like shit, unquote. That is, that's what he said. Because of this smell, he then again goes back to his house to get a bottle of bleach, as he thinks dousing his mom's body in bleach will hide the smell, I guess. He said to make it smell sanitary or sanitized or something which I believe he's like I just wanted to mask the smell this next quote from Gregory is absolutely terrifying and it is just it is beyond heartless so when he is explaining how he put his mother's body in the hole that he dug he says quote so I kicked the bitch's body in the hole but it didn't fit so I had to kind of cram her in there. I don't know if I broke any bones whatever. I poured the bleach on her put the dirt over her and I mean when you go out there you will see it. It looks perfectly natural unquote. Listening to this interview uh, with Gregory it really reminds me a lot of listening to um, I mean, it's different, but it still reminds me of listening to Edmund Kemper talk about murdering his mother. And actually, like Edmund Kemper, he also wanted, he like had this fascination with law enforcement as well. And I mean, Gregory admits he wanted to be a detective. He was in this volunteer program with the local police department. So, you know, I'm seeing quite a few similarities here. Edmund Kemper murdered his mother. Gregory murdered his mother. It's, uh, yeah, there's, I, I just kept seeing a lot of, similarities between Edmund Kemper and Gregory and Edmund Kemper he actually did murder his his grandparents when he was a child as well I forget exactly how old he was whether it was 13 or something like that but it's it's yeah there's a lot of similarities between Edmund Kemper and and Gregory 
So Gregory, he puts a lot of effort in making the grave look like nothing happened there. And when I saw crime scene pictures, it really did look like, you know, no hole had recently been dug at all, at all. He even used a broom to sweep away the drag marks in the dirt from where he had to drag his mom from the van to the fire pit. And he filled in the fire pit and he repositioned all the rocks around the fire pit and you cannot tell that anything that the ground had been recently disturbed there at all. Uh, had he not told police where he buried his mother, I think it would have taken a bit of effort and a bit of time to discover the exact location. Detectives are very curious as to the extent that Brian and Dylan helped to cover up this murder or if they were involved. Um, so they asked Gregory, like, what, what did your friends do aside from holding your stuff and being with you when you got, got, got rid of that stuff that you claimed was stolen? Gregory tells detectives that they also helped him stage the burglary scene and even kicked in the back door. And when he tells them this, Sergeant Pegliari is like, oh, good, more things they did. Like, that, that's, <laughs> that's literally what he said. Oh, good, more things they did. Like, he's writing a list because there is some accessory charges coming their way at about five hours into the interview it seems like detectives have got all the information they need as they are finishing up Gregory asks what's going to happen to him like will he go to jail all detectives can say is that he will be arrested but the rest it isn't up to them that's in the hands of the courts Gregory says yeah I know but because I'm a minor I can't go to jail can I is that a thing is it is it a thing that's what he says. And he's looking around like, wait a minute, can I even go to jail? And he's looking at Ken Jones and he's looking at Pegliari and he's looking at this piece of paper, which I assume is a confession he's signing. And the answer is yes, he, he can be tried as an adult and he will be. Gregory is also brought to the church fire pit to point out everything he did and where he did it. He even tells police he hid a 30 caliber gun, a shovel, a broom, his clothing, some laptops, and some other things in the woods behind the fire pit, which police did find. Brian and Dylan are being detained in a police car and they are fully being recorded, but they don't know that. And I heard the conversation and it was... um. It was quite odd for, for people in this situation. Clearly, they had no idea how serious this situation they were in was because they're, they're sitting in the back of this police car. They don't think anyone's listening to them, but they're being recorded. And they were singing. They were like singing songs and they were talking about how they have work tomorrow. And they don't seem to realize that, you know, they're not going to be able to go back to school they're not going to be able to go to go to work tomorrow they are under arrest they are involved in a in a murder brian seems to be very worried that his dad is going to be angry he says something like oh when i get home my dad's gonna chew me out and i'm not gonna have a birthday or christmas this year and i'm gonna be grounded for 10 years it, 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 it they don't realize they don't realize the legal implications they they can't see that. And hearing them talk, it really hits you just how young they are. Brian and Dylan were charged with accessory after the fact to second degree murder. Since the trial was about three years away, Brian was offered a $100,000 bond, which his parents paid. They also had a lawyer for Brian almost immediately. 
Since Brian was essentially free until the court date, he did go back to high school. He did graduate. He went on to go to college and he was even working by the time he went to trial. Dylan, however, his path looked a bit different. Because of his previous mental health issues, the court was worried he may try to take his own life if he was released. So he was not offered a bond until two years into being held in custody. And this was double of what Brian's was. Dylan's parents couldn't come up with that huge amount of money, so he had to stay in jail until his trial. The trials were in 2021, so they were arrested in 2018. The trials were in 2021. Dylan and Brian pled no contest to a reduced charge of accessory after the fact to second-degree murder. Dylan was sentenced to 828 days in jail, but since he spent around, I think it was three years already in jail awaiting trial, it was counted as time served. He also got 10 years probation. Dylan did, however, end up in jail after a breach of his parole. Apparently, he got into a traffic accident and fled from police. Brian, he was sentenced to 364 days in jail and 14 years probation. And I did read somewhere that Brian will not have a felony on his record for this. So what happened to Gregory? Well, Gregory, he took a plea deal and in court, he told the judge this. I am guilty of the crimes I am charged with. I don't deserve the mercy I've been shown, but today I ask that you extend the mercy to my co-defendants. They do not deserve to be incarcerated for my actions. They never realized the full extent of the crime, nor took the situation seriously until law enforcement was involved. When they were arrested, they cooperated with police fully. Gregory was handed down a 45-year prison sentence, but because he was a minor, his case will be reviewed after 25 years and parole may be an option at that time. I did also see a petition going around. So it was going around like a few years ago, I would imagine when this was all going through court and it was a petition to sign so that Gregory wouldn't be tried as an adult. If Gregory gets out at his earliest parole, he would be around, he would be just over 40 years old, I believe, because he gets 25 years in prison. He was probably about 17 years old when he was sentenced. So he could be out of prison by the age of 42. Gregory's aunt spoke in court, which is Gail's sister Gregory's mom's sister and she said that Gail did not deserve what happened to her she did not hurt Greg she did not abuse him she loved him and she loved being his mom she said that uh Gail was incredibly proud of him she kept every school program every certificate every award In court during Gregory's hearing, he also said this, because of my actions, I will never get to truly know my mom. Not only have I stolen my mother from myself, but I have stolen her from everybody else as well. From my stepfather, I took his other half. From my aunts and uncles, I took a sister and lifelong friend. And from my grandmother, a daughter. He also said that every day he tries his hardest to honor his mother's memory. He said he tries to live the way she would want him to live. Wow, that is that is a chilling and terrifying case. I mean, there is just something so jarring about kids who murder and kids who murder their their parents. It is just so It's terrifying. It's absolutely cold and heartless and terrifying. 
Well, that concludes this week's episode. If you want to stay updated with what's happening on the podcast, follow Hell No A True Crime Podcast or Instagram or TikTok at Hell No underscore A True Crime Podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next week.